So during these days and for the foreseeable future, the core of our vocabulary and also the center of our emotions involve words like isolation, social distancing, six feet apart, isolation, alone. And so for the remainder of this time where we're worshiping virtually, Joe and Katie and I are going to be preaching a sermon series called Only the Lonely. I took a moment last week to survey the scriptural testimony to God's desire to seek us out and to be next to us. And it's really quite impressive, the pervasive witness of scripture to God's near presence. And today's gospel lesson, lesson is a good example of that. This is the, the story of the road to Emmaus from Luke's resurrection narrative in chapter 24. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you're walking? And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered Jesus, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? Jesus asked them, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all God's people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures and as they came near the village to which they were going, Jesus walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for the day is already far spent. And so Jesus went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, stay with us, for evening is at hand and the day is far spent. Be our companion in the way. Kindle our hearts and awaken hope that we may know you as you are revealed in Scripture and the breaking of bread. Grant this for the sake of your love. Amen. Among the multiple and serious disruptions this virus is pressing down among the human family, one of the sadder deprivations is the fact that we can't properly farewell our lost loves. We can't even say goodbye. Some of you had shared for me how painful it is to have to bury your beloved from a distance with no memorial service at all or a minimal one or a virtual one. And so psychiatrists and pastors and therapists are talking about unfinished grief. Now, it's probably true that no serious grief is ever finished, right? If you ever, ever lost someone you really, really, really love, that ache may never disappear. Time heals many wounds, maybe most wounds, but not all wounds. But you see what they mean by unfinished grief, yes? 
We have to be able to say goodbye. We have to thank God properly for the huge, unique, unmerited gift of our lost love. And we can't do that just now. One psychology professor from the University of Memphis says, you could not design a circumstance that more greatly complicates people's grieving. And so that familiar beloved story from Luke's resurrection narrative is exactly the word from the Lord that we need to hear today because those two disciples on the road to Emmaus were in exactly the same situation as we are. Their grief was unfinished. Their goodbye had been small, quick, and haphazard. They could give their friend neither a proper burial nor a fitting farewell. Jesus died, of course, on Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock. In Jerusalem that April evening, the Jewish Sabbath would commence at sunset at 7.05 p.m., which gave his friends four hours to get him off the cross and in the ground before the Holy Shabbat. No time to grieve, no time to comfort each other, no time to throw him a lavish wake, just in the ground. And so on Sunday afternoon, two of Jesus' friends who'd been celebrating Passover in the big city all that weekend decide just to go home to their small village of Emmaus, seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. What else are you going to do? You just got to get out of the big sad city. They're disconsolate. They're empty, they're afraid, they're sharing their precious memories of their friend, they're comforting each other, and suddenly there's this stranger who materializes out of nowhere like Captain Kirk in Star Trek, and he begins walking alongside them and bursting in on their intimate conversation. And of course it's Jesus himself, but they didn't realize that until later. Jesus comes to them is the message of this story. Jesus comes to them right where they are in all of their brokenness, in all of their aching, in their emptiness. And that's God's good word for us today, this morning, because coronavirus is not the only epidemic afflicting the human family just now. There's also an epidemic of loneliness, right? Did you know that loneliness is just as dangerous to your health as smoking, excessive drinking, obesity, and lack of exercise. Smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, or consuming a fifth of vodka a day, or being 30 pounds overweight, or sitting on the couch all day, all are equal indicators of a shorter lifespan. They're all as dangerous to your health equally. Social isolation kills, literally. And this virus is so cruel because it's just crushed the support systems of so many people and has isolated us from each other. Even before this virus, there was an epidemic of loneliness in America. 35 million Americans live all by themselves more than ever before. 28% of our households have just one person living in them. Highest figure ever. Not all of them are lonely. Some people live alone because they like being alone. They don't want a partner or a roommate. But it's also true that many other people who are surrounded by crowds describe themselves as lonely. And if you feel lonely, you are. And it's dangerous. In one recent study from this year, 60% of Americans describe themselves as lonely. That's shocking to me. If you... Afori Mensa runs the Presidential Scholars Program 
at Princeton University. This is a program that tries to help under-resourced undergraduates get into PhD programs. Afia is 39 years old and has lived alone for 16 years, most of her adult life. She can't remember the last time she touched another human being and she does not know when the next time that will happen. She says, I don't have a partner, I don't have a pet, I don't even have a plant. I feel as if I am disappearing. The doctors who are caring for our COVID-19 patients are intimate with loneliness. Their patients' aloneness and their own. One night recently, Marissa Nadeau, an emergency room physician at Columbia University Medical Center, helped three dying patients say goodbye to their families via FaceTime. They said goodbye on her phone. She says, I went into the specialty to save lives, and all I'm doing is helping them die. You can recognize these brave people if you pass them on the street. They're a little shell-shocked. They look a little exhausted. They're the ones who have indentations across the bridge of their nose, rough red spots, abrasions from wearing an abrasive surgical mask for 12-hour shifts, day after day after day. They spend a lot of time talking to each other because no one outside the emergency room and the ICU can even understand what's going on in there. An ER doctor from New York Presbyterian says that they're sort of like Vietnam veterans who are coming home to an oblivious America having no language to describe what they've experienced. And we are overwhelmed just now with so much loss and so much grief and so much fear and so much death. But Scripture's promise is that we are never alone. There is a risen Christ afoot in the suburbs of Jerusalem. And if we pay attention on our daily round, we might just discover that some unexpected stranger has caught up with us and is matching our stride step for step and is trying to interrupt our fraught, anxious conversation that we're having with each other. He's inter interrupting to tell us that there is resurrection, there is life, there is hope. It will be all right. Cleopas and his traveling companion didn't recognize the risen Christ, but he recognized them. They were his friends. And they were in serious trouble. And he hunted them down. He zeroed in on his friends. I think I could make the argument that Schindler's List is the greatest film of them all. Both for its artistic achievement and for the history lessons it will never let us forget. I won't make that argument. I'll just tell you that for me it was the most powerful cinematic experience of my life. I was so overcome, I almost had to leave the theater. It's two hours and 38 minutes long, mostly black and white, except for one little speck of red. 
It's a little girl, maybe five years old, in a red coat. And the camera follows her as she gets separated from her parents, wanders lost and alone through the city streets, hides from the Nazis, and ends up in the concentration camp. It's usually a long shot. Steven Spielberg usually uses his camera from a far angle on top of a roof or maybe from a hillside. And in the frame, she is so tiny you'd never notice her unless Mr. Spielberg had emblazoned her with that speck of scarlet. Frederick Buechner says, in this dark world where you and I see so little with our unrecognizing eyes, he, whose eye is always on the sparrow, sees each one of us as the child in red. And I believe that because he sees us, not even in the darkness of death are we lost to him nor to each other. I believe that whether we recognize him or not, whether we believe in him or not, or even know his name, again and again he comes and walks a little way with us along whatever road we're following. And I believe that through something that happens to us, or something we see, or somebody we know, who can ever guess how or when or where? He offers us, the way he did at Emmaus, the bread of life, a new hope, a vision of light that even the darkness cannot overcome. This is the saving and holy word that flickers among us like a red coat in a gray world. Cleopas and his traveling companion didn't recognize Jesus while they were walking the way, and who could blame them? They were not looking for him. Who looks for the living among the dead? But if they'd paid a little closer attention, they would have noticed the indentations in his forehead, the rough red scars, the abrasions, created by that crown of thorns. They would have seen the stigmata of the crucified Christ, which look a little like the abrasions and rough red marks around the eyes and mouth of those doctors who care for the hopeless through 12-hour shifts, day after day after day. And Cleopas and his friend would have known they would have known, as we are coming to know, how far love will go to snatch life from death. When he arrives at home after his seven-mile, two-hour walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, Cleopas says to the companion, he does not yet know is the risen Christ. Stay with us, for the day is far spent. You know, that's not actually a bad table grace during these days. Jesus, stay with us, for the day is far spent. The sun is setting. It's getting dark. We're a little alone. We're a little afraid. Won't you stay? Won't you stay? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.